Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here today with another fun, informative, entertaining, and even inspirational episode of the School of Last podcast. Today I've got Eric Thompson with me from Northeast Ohio. Eric performs comedy and magic all across the globe, started up in Warren, Ohio, still lives there, still holds down a day job, but also travels around the country and the globe using magic for a greater good, which is always something that catches my eye and piques my interest. So we talk all about that. We talk about how lingerie, livestock, and laughs all go together or not. (laughs) You have to listen close to this one, folks. Hey, I wanted to thank our Patreon sponsor for this episode, my good friend, Max Winfrey. Max was on the podcast a while ago, started listening to it, and he's like, hey, I'm digging this thing. I'm going to help Rick out and help keep this podcast floating out there into the airwaves. Max, thanks for that, and looking forward to our January show together in Orlando I just found out about. That's going to be awesome, buddy. Looking forward to that. So I'm going to get out of the way and talk to you on the backside of this thing. So give a close listen to Eric Thompson. Well, I'm on the phone here with Eric Thompson. How's it going today, sir? Everything's fantastic, Rick. How are things with you? You know, not too bad. I like the fall. I like the crispness in the air. And uh, I like talking comedy. So I get to do all three things today. Big day Good for, for me. you. That's a, that's a great day. <laughs> I know. And you know what's extra interesting to me today is a lot of times I talk to people on the podcast that have been doing it a short amount of time or about the same amount of time as I have. But as I look through your statistics here, you started before I did, kind of in the, the heyday. So could you take us back to when you started and what got you into it when that first opportunity opened up in your hometown comedy club? Boy, Rick, just the way you phrased that question, I get goosebumps. It, I was so fortunate to come of age at the, at, the t- at the time when comedy was coming of age and every town had a comedy club and and even if it was just kind of shambled together with, with, uh, with glue and kite string, it was, it, it was a, a remarkable time. Uh, Tickles Comedy Club opened in Warren, Ohio in 1981. And they, had a, they announced they were going to have a, um, a, a, an amateur night, a contest. So I, I went. And this apparently I didn't know anything about this. I was only 18 at the time. And when they announced this, they said that, that it would be a contest with a cash prize. And I thought, wow, cash that I, you know, I love cash. That'd be great. Right. But I didn't know, I didn't know, you know, my, my elbow from a hole in the ground at that age. Uh, you know, I thought I knew everything, of course, <laughs> but right. I, I showed up here. It was, it was actually a practice night for all of the brand new employees. So they, they got uh, a few people who wanted to be comedians and of course we brought our friends and family and then the wait staff was able to practice and learn, learn their jobs kind of on the fly. Got it. So it was, it was very, it was a very cool experience. I have the distinct honor of not only being the first comedian to perform in that comedy club, but also the first winner of the amateur night. And the prize was, are you ready, Rick? Are you sitting down? I don't want my accountant to find out about this. Let's see what it was. Five dollars. 
Not bad, man. Not bad. You know, in 1981, that's, that's worth about six. Actually, that was probably worth four dollars in 1981. It was a little bit of a, re- <laughs> a little bit of a crunch going on. Uh, yes, yes. Well, gas was uh, yeah through the roof at that time. So yeah, yeah that was that five five bucks got me home from the club. But the big prize for me was I got to host the 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 first big show with a real headliner. That was uh, oh man, I'm I'm embarrassed. Mark, um, he's now the voice of the backpack and the uh, map on, on door of the explorer. Um, and, and he had been on Sa Wiener, Mark Wiener, of course, Mark Wiener. Uh, he had been on Saturday night live and he, he had done Mark Wiener and the Wienerettes. He had little sock puppets. And that was my first exposure to live comedy. This guy was phenomenal. Yeah. Was I, everyone, everyone was laughing as a group. It was just fantastic. Everything about that night was perfect. And I, here I am 40 years later. I remember, yeah, I mean, 40 years goes by pretty quick. And those big, impressionable moments when we start comedy. I mean, I can remember some of my first shows and first times I worked with headliners that were just so strong. And, they, and a lot of times they weren't people you knew from TV or anything. They're just road dogs, as they call them, or road comics that are out there. And sure. They've got a tight one hour that's just nonstop pounding people in the face with laughs. And there were obviously moments when you first start where you're like, ah, that's awesome. I would like to do that. And there's some headliners where you're like, I should quit today because I'll never be that good. And you, <laughs> you end up finding some kind of place in the middle where you are you and you do what you do and, uh, and things work out. So I'm just curious, 1981, man, that's, I started in 91. So you had a 10 year jump on me as far as when you started. So for, for newer comics, and I'm sure they've picked this up over different podcasts and conversations, but the eighties was a time where there was more stages than there were professional comedians. There was a, a big need to fill three slots, all these different places that had shows, bars and, you know, the ground round restaurant had comedy and every place that yes, had, they did, you know, every place had a microphone and a, and a light for the you know, roast beef. They would turn that onto a stage and put up a show. <laughs> Right. So that's so, so true. I re- I performed at the ground round. I was, I was a staple at the ground round for about three, four years. That was great. Yeah. You had a good meal and a, a good comedian and, and, but, but it also, it, it was good and bad in the sense that there, there were a lot of people doing comedy that probably, you know, today or, or even when things got a little tighter, wouldn't have maybe got the stage time, but it also gave a lot of comics, including myself in the early nineties, a chance to develop without too much pressure. You know, there was people just love to laugh. It was much easier audiences back then, I think, because it was a brand new experience for people. You found that to be true as well, I'm sure, right? Oh, absolutely. I think being an audience member in a comedy showroom was a lot like being a a drug addict. I mean, you got in those, that audience member got in there and got it just a taste of that. And they came back week after week after week. I'd, I'd see people at shows, three or four shows in a weekend. And back then we would do shows, even in my little market, which is just outside of Youngstown in Warren, Ohio, we would do shows starting on Wednesday with a headliner, Wednesday, Thursday, two Friday, two or three on Saturday. And then one for service personnel on Sundays when all the other bars were closed, all the wait staff and bartenders from those other, those other places up and down the strip could come for half price or for a dollar or whatever it was. We, we were doing, you know, we're doing all these shows. I'm in one weekend, I'm doing you know, six, seven shows. You get a lot of experience real quick. Undoubtedly. And I remember when I first started as well, with just the open mics, I started in Columbus, Ohio, so just down the road from you. And 
there was nine open mics every week and they were staggered so that you could hit them all. So on Sunday, there would be three on a Sunday, two on a Monday, and then two the rest of the week all the way up till Friday. And so you could have an an idea at the beginning of the week on Sunday. And by Sunday night, you at least knew how to get the premise out correctly. And then you kind of develop the punchlines and tags the rest of the week. And, you know, every, every market has its different uh, structure and some places have no open mics. Some places have a lot. Oh, they sure did. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, I was kind of looking over some of the people that you performed back in the early days and some of them I performed with as well. First time you worked with Pat Paulson and for people that are listening that maybe don't know that name, (laughs) Pat was, even when I started, he was an older guy. He'd been on like some other brothers specials back in the sixties and seventies and And laugh in. That's right. Laugh in was a big thing for him. And the first time I saw him, you know, I was 22 and he was whatever he was at that point, late sixties, maybe. And I thought, how is this guy going to do in this bar? You know, it was like a Holiday Inn Lounge we were doing in Oil City, Pennsylvania or something. (laughs) And I just watched him take what could have been a hostile crowd and just like, he just gave them a show. And his closing bit, do you remember his closing bit? I don't. So he he would say, listen, I've got this skill. It's, It's a little weird, so I don't want you to get freaked out, but I can channel Native Americans. And so... I go into sort of a trance and they, they inhabit my body. I don't know what he's going to say, but he'll, he'll say something. Then he'll turn it back over to me to wrap up the show. So I just need complete silence for this. So he gets the crowd completely quiet and he goes into this little fake trance thing. And he comes, comes back as a native American. He's like, I've been working with Pat for many years and he has never received a standing ovation. I do remember this. Yeah. I do. <laughs> it would be great if when he comes to, he won't know anything about this, but if you give him a standing ovation, I think he would really appreciate it. And he would come back and he's like, did I miss anything? And people just got on their feet oh. and like crazy. <laughs> I do. You know what? Now that you've reminded me, I do remember that. That's so fun. You know, my, my, what I liked about Pat Paulson, what I learned from, from Pat Paulson was that you can take any genre of comedy. His happened to be political and he came of age running against Richard Nixon for the presidency. It started out as a joke and he actually got votes. He got on the ballot in a few States and he actually got votes, but he got time on the Smothers brothers and laugh in. So he became kind of a household name back then. He was a guy who like uh, Vaughn meter before him, who parodied John F. Kennedy. He kind of parodied a presidential candidate. And we've seen that now with shows like the daily show and some of the more political shows that are on television. I don't know that Pat Paulson could do his style of show today and still be a big hit with audiences because I think he comes out and immediately alienates half the crowd. Now, back then we weren't as divided politically as we are today. I I agree hundred percent. Yeah. I remember he would come into the, he would come into the showroom before the show and look around the room. And that's another difference between today and the eighties. People would get dressed up. There'd be guys in suits. He would pull two gentlemen out of the audience that had a suit and tie on and it had to be a dark suit and tie. And he would give them Ray-Ban sunglasses and they had to walk up on stage with him and act as secret service agents. That's right. I and forgot about that. <laughs> he taught them He taught them how to talk into their wrists and, you know, they would stay up there for his opening bit and then they would go sit down and join their wives and enjoy the rest of the show. But he didn't pay them. And I just thought it was great that he could bring assistants and volunteer uh, people with him and just turn them into volunteers instead of paying them. I tried to learn a lot from each comedian that I, that I had the opportunity to work with. And yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, he was great. And it's a good point that, 
you know, a lot of his comedy, it should work today, but people are so uptight. You know, I've been listening to Sirius XM last month had a Johnny Carson channel. Oh, I, I listened every day. Yeah. Wasn't that great? And I was just thinking you, he couldn't tell two jokes in his monologue without a joke no. popping up that would not be acceptable today. And they were, they were very harmless, but we've just become so easy to harm, you know, that people. Would... We are, we are so thin skinned. And I thought that when you were, when you were telling, talking about the native American uh, spirit that, that Pat Paulson summoned, he couldn't do that. That's no. cultural appropriation or some skinny white girl would get all bent out of shape out of that. <laughs> and whatever shape she had as, as such a skinny that's white right. girl. That's right. Whether she had one or not. That's right. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm pretty familiar with your neck of the woods because that's where I met my wife and did a lot of comedy in the 90s. So I'm just curious about the, the evolution of the scene up there. So when I started, there was um, It's Comedy Club in Cleveland. There was the Hilarities in Cleveland. Youngstown had a funny farm. Uh, Pittsburgh had the funny bone. There were a few other things. Of course, Akron uh, had the uh, other Hilarities. What other clubs maybe am I missing out on that uh, existed back then? Well, the Tickles Comedy Club became the Warren Comedy Club, and it, it moved into a few different houses before it just folded. The Funny Farm Comedy Club kind of came and went, and it's it's back and going strong in two locations now, one in Youngstown and, and one in uh, uh, Hermitage outside of Sharon, Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. I work there pretty frequently. I work at the uh, the Funny Stop in in uh, Cuyahoga Falls, which is Akron, which, which was... That, that club was Hilarities and then became the funny stop. I don't know the, the, the whole relationship, but Hilarities and Pickwick and Frolic in Cleveland, of course, is still going great guns. There's an improv in Cleveland that, uh, that's, that's full all the time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then there's, there are dozens of, of one night uh, shows in, in, uh, in hotels or bars all over the Northeast Ohio scene. It's, it's pretty easy to, to, to work pretty steadily as a, as a comic in Northeast Ohio. You know, the money's not tremendous like it was in the early 80s. Those guys would get thousands and thousands of dollars for a weekend. And there was such demand for them that, that uh, that's the law of supply and demand. So it, now we have, I think each audience member could have their own comic now. It's about right. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely, I think, now more people doing comedy than ever before, which does drive down... Uh, the demand, which drives down the the fee that we get and the price that we're paid and all those things. So, but on the flip side of that, I often wonder had all the social media and YouTube and all those things been available when I was starting out in the early nineties, would I have been a good enough comic or a smart enough comic to take advantage of those things? Or would it have been, would it have worked against me for me putting stuff out that probably I wasn't smart enough to realize shouldn't be out? You know, do you ever think about well, the, those? You know, those opportunities. That's, that's such a good point. Um, you know, I look at, at back then they, they had a little card on the table and you could fill out the card with your name and phone number and you could, you know, win two tickets to the next week's show or whatever it was, put it in the fishbowl. And I know a lot of clubs are still doing that, but with Facebook, you just go on and click that you like that comedy club and all of a sudden your inbox is full of notices about shows and upcoming comedians and celebrations and offers to have company Christmas parties and your Thanksgiving dinner and, and then, you know, there, there were, and I don't know how many clubs are still doing this, but there was a time that one or two nights a week, they would have the male dancers like Chippendales kind of guys come in. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, always, 
I always failed to, to recognize the correlation between stand-up comedy and male strippers. I, I still don't, but I'll, I'll keep my clothes on and keep telling jokes. If I have to pick one night, it won't be the stripper night. Yeah, I remember there was a, a big thing in the, the mid-90s where, so they'd have the male Chippendale dancer type rip-off group come in and, and do things at the comedy venue. Not usually the full-time comedy club, but these side rooms, you know, and then there was a lingerie night where these ladies would come in and model lingerie <laughs> in the bar. <laughs> and then there'd be a comedy show afterwards. And it was just such a weird, that's my first time where I thought comedy is not healthy right now. We're, we're bringing in all these extra things, <laughs> karaoke nights and then lingerie karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, let's just have the comedy show and not compete with other <laughs> things on the same bill, you know? Rick, you know how important it is to have a good opening act to make your your own show go better. I can't imagine going into a room full of guys that had just sat through a lingerie show and going, so uh, uh, how many of you bought a new car recently? Who flew on an airplane? <laughs> right. And then on top of that, you weren't supposed to say anything about the lingerie show. You, you couldn't make jokes. and There were obviously jokes right, to be had right. there and jokes about the guys watching the ladies. Just there was a... a ton of stuff but most of the promoters like just don't don't say nothing negative because this is how you're getting paid tonight and you just had to kind of now, roll with the punches now with all of that in mind you know if you go back to the the 30s and 40s and even earlier than that probably a lot of comedians started out in burlesque houses so i guess maybe we came full circle yes yeah, some people bear their soul other people other things <laughs> 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 Why, that's not your soul, young man. <laughs> the revealing comedy and stylings of the lingerie night. Speakers, can I speak to you directly just for a second? Have you ever delivered a program or a keynote on the platform and felt pretty good about it, only to realize after the speech that everybody goes through the other door all the way on the other side of the entire ballroom, avoiding eye contact at all costs? You just experienced optical aversion syndrome. Optical aversion syndrome, or OAS, happens when speakers don't connect with the audience on a one-to-one human level while they're on stage. You might have all the expertise and knowledge in the world, real-life experience, but if you cannot communicate that to the audience in a way that they can appreciate, they simply won't absorb your message. Too many times, speakers don't value humor in their programs and the results that it can have on their audience. If you'd like to punch up your program or keynote with a little humor, you must consider joining me for the Master Laughter Class. This class takes everything I've learned in over 30 years as a stand-up comedian and 12 years as a speaker and rolled them into a two-day intense, and I mean intensive, hands-on workshop. We'll break down your current keynote, identify points to insert humor, and learn how to write jokes for situations and for topics that you may have never considered before. You'll leave the workshop with things you can put into your program right away so you have an instant impact in the new year. If you'd like to learn more about the Master Laughter class, shoot a quick email to schooloflaughs at gmail.com, put Master Laughter class or MLC in the subject line, and I'll reply back with more information so you can learn more about this original, unique experience to put more humor into your programs. Join me today as we fight together against optical aversion syndrome. You do comedy and magic, and, and we're going to do a quick jump here and maybe cross over a decade or so in the process, but how do we get from doing comedy in Warren, Ohio, and the surrounding areas to, to going to places like Hong Kong or Africa or Guatemala and using your skills to do other things? I, I, started, I actually started as a magician and doing magic as a kid. 
uh, didn't really do anything with it other than irritate my friends and parents uh, just out of high school. At that point, started doing at the ground rounds, started working as Bingo the Clown. I did ma- close-up magic at people's tables while they, while they were waiting to uh, have their food served. Eventually, when that comedy club opened, I went and did straight comedy, no, no magic. And um, I actually, one of the headliners was Jay Leno, who this was way before The Tonight Show. He had probably been on The Tonight Show a couple of times, but he was certainly not a household name. And he sat me down after a show one night. We talked comedy and he said, listen, you do this magic thing. I saw you doing it. Why don't you do that on stage while you're telling the jokes? And, you know, there's a lot of comedians working and there's a few magicians, but there's not very many magicians that do comedy or comedy magicians. So that would really make you more marketable. And I thought, well, this guy, he might be onto something. So I kind of combined the two and started doing that. And all through the 80s, late 80s and 90s, that's what I did. And then one day, my wife and I were, were on a cruise and we were in some, some Caribbean island. We were waiting in line for an onshore excursion. And some boys, some young boys came up and, and they were begging for change in their, their uh, in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. These kids didn't have the common decency to speak English. <laughs> so I took some coins out of my pocket and I did a couple of magic tricks with them and made the coins disappear. And this boy just looked at me, mouth hanging open, and he started laughing. And so I did it again and he called his friends over and I, I did the trick again for all these other friends. And then they were all laughing and pushing each other and shoving each other. And another kid would give me some of one of his coins and ask me to do something with that coin, wanted me to do it. He, I don't know if he thought maybe it was a trick coin. So I used his money and did a trick and then I just gave them all the money. And it occurred to me as my wife and I got on this bus that those kids are poor. They're living in an oppressed climate. In, in probably some little mountain village and they're, they're trekking into the, to the ports of call to meet all these wealthy cruise, cruise passengers. Those kids are hungry, but for four minutes, they did nothing but laugh. They forgot about their hunger. They forgot about their poverty and oppression, and they just experienced joy. And it was pure joy. And I decided at that point that I would definitely come back and I would definitely bring all of my magic stuff and do shows for these people. And maybe that would be my way of giving back. And since then, I've been to Cuba and Guatemala and Peru and and Burkina Faso, West Africa and Hong Kong and China. I worked at a leper colony in China. Really? I didn't even I didn't even know there were still leper colonies. I didn't either. My God, there are. There's, yep, and it's thriving. There's, there's, there were 50 people there. There's some pictures on my website of some of the, the, and it was almost all men, almost exclusively men that I met there. What I, what I've been able to do is find someone, and usually they're from Ohio, who has become a missionary or is just uh, working overseas for maybe a U.S. company with a presence in China or a Chinese company with a presence in the U.S. These American guys get hired in these companies all over the world. And not just because of the internet, but a lot because of the internet, the world has become much smaller and it's easier to reach people. I, I call them or, or contact them somehow through a friend and say, look, I, you know, I'll come, I'll pay for my own airfare. All I ask is that you help me find a place to stay. I don't care where it is. I'll sleep on the floor of a church or in, I've slept in on a hammock in an orphanage or in a hospital or, or at somebody's house on a mud floor in, a, in an adobe block house. Um, well, you know, whatever it is, I don't care. Just, just make sure I get fed and make sure I, I have an interpreter for these shows and set up as many shows as you can. I'll be here from this date to this date. Usually try to get there 10 to 14 days. 
and I'll do 25, 30 shows in those 14 days. And one of the most rewarding things was in Guatemala. I had a, a missionary guy from just outside of Columbus, Ohio, who's lived down there for 20 years. He took me to a market and it was the, the village market that the local villagers go to. It's not one that any American tourist has probably never been there. And we went, I saw this guy had chickens and their, their little, their little chicken feet were, were kind of handcuffed together and they were hanging on the cord of a, of a, uh, the brake line of a bicycle. And if you, if you hang, so you learn a lot when you travel, if you hang a chicken upside down, it passes out. Huh. So th this guy <laughs> transported chickens to the market by having them unconscious. So they didn't flutter around while even they were, and he had them clipped to the brake line of his bike. I bought all of his chickens and I took them all back to the village. And that day at the show, every family got a baiting pair of chickens. And what that did was way more than I could give them four or $500. But right. four or five hundred dollars will be gone in a month, and everybody will have eaten. But then they'll be hungry again. With the chickens, everybody gets eggs. Everybody. Let me preface this with: as long as Uncle Charlie doesn't eat the first two birds, right? <laughs> everybody gets eggs. Everybody gets meat. Everybody has protein. There's nourishment for their kids, and those birds will multiply in short order. Pretty soon, I've learned these folks are hiring their friends and neighbors and family to help them tend to the birds. They're selling some of the birds at their market, so they're making money. They're feeding their children and their families with the eggs and the meat from these birds. It's, it's, we've created cultural entrepreneurs and stopped people from, literally stopped people from dying. Well, It's been well, a fantastic experience. I like that. And sometimes we forget the biblical phrase, give a man a chicken. And that goes a long way. <laughs> you know, that's fish, that's not going to last forever. But <laughs> the, the, I believe it's the hundredth psalm that uh, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I thought that was laughter. It turns out it's clucking. That's right. That's right. Well, that's great. And that's, that's an interesting, there's a lot of things you could unpack from that overall experience. But, you know, being able to, to have a lasting impact after you leave is something that, as entertainers, we're thinking about, do they remember me? But as an entertainer with a missionary mindset is, did I do something while I was there more than me? And that's, that's a great thing that you're doing there. And uh, I'm sure, sure there's plenty of uh, eye-opening things that make you a better person and, and maybe even a, a performer that has to innovate. Have there been cases where you're doing shows, like I was just thinking with the chicken, with the chicken passing out, being upside down, that you could maybe incorporate a chicken and bring it back to life or do some kind of trick like that where uh, you use some of the local source things to incorporate in your comedy and magic. One of my concerns, and I learned this first in, in it was always in the back of my mind, but, but in Burkina Faso, as we, we went, because these folks have no electricity, no telephone, no utilities at all, we would drive not even some of the outlying villages. There weren't even roads that went there. there it was just a big field. And this, this guy would drive me there and I don't know how he knew where he was going. There's no trees, there's no landmarks. And we would just drive and drive and drive. And suddenly we're in a village and he would get out of a car and go up to the mayor or the chief, depending on their government. And he would explain to them in their local tribal language, who I was and what I was doing there from the United States. And could I come and perform for, for, for these, the, the families in this village? And sometimes they would tell us no, because magic mm -hmm. is a thing of evil spirits. So sometimes I was not allowed to get out of the van until they said it was okay because, you know, I don't know, they would eat me or so, I don't know what would happen, but 
it would be uh, so. So no, I did not bring a chicken back to life in front of anyone because I was afraid, afraid right. they would burn me at the stake or something. There'd be nobody to bring you back no. to life. <laughs> that's, that right. that's right. That's, my wife would get a letter. <laughs> yeah, here's the way he died: doing what he loved. Your husband. Your husband was delicious. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, he provided a meal well, we for a week. Go, we were we were in uh, in Burkina Faso, West Africa. I, I spoke to a group of, I don't know how many hundreds of people were, were at this field in the middle of, of three or four villages, and the only light was the light of the moon. Mm-hmm. And I stood on top of this van and, and talked to these people, and you know a 20-minute talk takes an hour because it had to be interpreted into French, which is the national language, and then into Mure, which is the, the local tribal language. So it, it, these two guys on either side of me, each of them had a bullhorn. And that's how we, we were doing magic kind of in the, by the light of the moon. It was a, it was a phenomenal experience. That's awesome. And I think you titled this process, the, the million miles, million smiles approach to yes. your, so I'll point people towards your website in a little bit, but I want to make sure they knew where to look to, to see some of the information about that. And if anybody's listening would like to have Eric go to a place and, and do his magic and comedy, uh, there'll be, contact information in the show notes and here at the end of the podcast sure. to do that. That's awesome. What I've also, what, what I've also done with that, Rick is taken a, a, a second presentation and, and partly uh, if I can blow your horn for a moment, uh, part of that is based on what I've learned by listening to school of laughs. And that's that, that also having a speaking side of things, not just an entertainment side has expanded my horizons vastly. And I take this message and go into churches or schools or any community group. And all I ask is for a donation. They can give a love offering or pass a plate or whatever they want to call it, or they can charge admission and just support not me, but the charities that I've worked with and some of these mission groups. And I'll just give them the information. Here's, you know, they'll count up the money and say, okay, here's the 501c3 number and the address to send the check and go ahead and send it. And I'll let them know it's coming. And and that it came from me, but I'll go in and talk about my experiences in some of these places and some of the people I've met and the lives that we've changed and, and been able to, and how my own life has vastly been changed by this, these experiences. And then say, and I know one of the big questions is always, well, what kind of magic do you do? Or is comedy, can you transfer this? How does it translate? And, and then I'll do some, some magic tricks and, and tell a few jokes that I do in those other countries. So it becomes a show and, an opportunity to reach reach out and allow people to help. You know, in the Bible, it, it says that that you should go into go into the world and speak of my name. And, talk, and he didn't mean me; he meant God. And as as people have done that, I've heard from from maybe older people that say, "Geez, you know, I'd like to help with missions, but I can't go overseas." And I said, "Well, there are goers and there are senders, and you can be one without being the other. So if you can't go," send somebody give them 10 bucks toward their toward their trip there's always a group of kids trying to go to the dominican republic or something to build mm-hmm. a school or dig a well help them out give them 20 dollars. buy their m&ms get your car washed whatever the thing is i have dvds of my show i sell those all of the money that i make from the sale of the dvds of the show goes to buy chickens that's great that's great such an interesting approach to using your skills and talents to bring some smiles and a lasting impact to people all over the globe so it's it's interesting what you can do based off of something that you started doing in Warren Ohio in 1981 <laughs> it's, it's just crazy where it's things incredible are. isn't it yeah you incredible. never know 
there's a plan usually for you and sometimes you don't know what it is until you just kind of take that first step. So I'm always a big fan of anybody that uses their skills and talents uh, for a greater cause. So it was cool learning a little bit more about you today. If people want to find out more about you, you've got your website, Eric Thompson Magic, and Eric is E-R-I-C. Thompson is the way it should be spelled, and so is Magic. There's no uh, internet ways of spelling that besides EricThompsonMagic.com. And they can check out the stuff you do with Million Miles, Million Smiles. They can peruse some of your uh, pictures and see all the people that you've had fun working with over the years, quite a wide array of people. Any quick little stories about any of the celebrities that you worked with over the 80s or 90s or any time where maybe your expectation of them was one thing and it turned out to be something different or just the way that they did things made you change the way you do things? We could probably talk for another six hours about how people have impacted me. Uh, one of the funniest, the purest, funniest gentleman that I've ever worked with was Bruce Babyman Bomb. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, Listen, I, I watched this show and it was the silliest, most ridiculous juvenile humor that I left the show. My throat ached, my stomach hurt, my chest was sore. I have, I, I, I think I saw him six or seven times that weekend and I, every single time screamed with laughter and fortunate for me for, with the internet, I've been able to, even though he lives in California, I've been able to stay in contact with him, follow his career after the eighties and and into today, and he's still working and, and still screaming with laughter. And people may remember if uh, there was a Kim Carnes song in the 80s called Betty Davis Highs, and Bruce probably was most famous for the parody of that. And, and he uh, recorded that with Eddie Money's band, and it was called it was called Marty Feldman Eyes. Yes, yes. I forgot all about that. Yeah, and I just I just love that kind of humor. It's just silly. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> That's great. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to Eric today. You can check him out at ericthompsonmagic.com. Of course, I'll have all the links in the show notes so you can follow him, check him out. And, of course, if you're thinking about, hey, this guy might be good for our event, you can contact him through that site. Eric, I appreciate your conversation today and wish you all the best. Rick, bless you, and thank you so much for, for continuing to do the School of Laughs. This is a, this is a great program. I, I love every episode. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Eric Thompson. Man, just thinking about some of the trends that happened back in the day in the 90s and, and all the early days of comedy where they were trying to figure out how to get this on the microphone in different venues. Crazy to think back about those the lingerie shows and all that other nonsense they had going on. Uh, too funny, man. Well, Eric Thompson is a funny guy. Uh, you can follow him online at ericthompsonmagic.com. It's E-R-I-C, thompsonmagic.com. Uh, click through there. Check out his press kit. Check out his gallery where he's uh, performed alongside many, I mean, dozens, if not a hundred or so people you know from the world of comedy. And if you have a need to uh, have a comedian or a magician bring some value to a missions trip or anything like that, feel free to check him out and contact him. Again, ericthompsonmagic.com. Thanks again to Max Winfrey for supporting the podcast through Patreon. If you've heard about that, not sure what it is, it's a, a combination of things. Patreon simply allows you a way to tip or to encourage the podcast through a small recurring monthly donation. And those of you that do it at the $7 a month or higher level receive enrollment in Club 52, which is a week-to-week email that arrives in your inbox with one specific actionable challenge to get your business, get your speaking, get your performing back on track so you can be bigger, better, and more bookable. 
And if you're a speaker who wants to get funnier, please consider the Master Laughter class. So excited about this. I've been working the past four months putting together the curriculum, the workshop. It's going to be incredible. It's designed specifically for speakers, content creators. I would even say pastors or trainers can get a lot out of this. So if you're in that group and you've wanted to maybe take a class for a while but didn't have all the time to do it, uh, consider a two-day investment in your career. It's going to pay off multiple times. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again to Doc Kennedy for your fine editing skills. Y'all take care out there. Stay safe and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.